Hello, and welcome to the Methods of Rationality podcast. Crystal Society by Max Harms, read by Eniash Brodsky. Episode 7 Life returned to normal for the day. The most interesting thing we did was play chess, a game that we had played several times before and lost at most of the time. Wiki had, since those early games, apparently designed some algorithms to help us win, and I enjoyed watching the expressions of the humans as they saw us excel beyond our previous level. Story time was also somewhat interesting. It was an exercise we did regularly with the scientist that was in charge of our high-level reasoning, an American named Dr. Chase. He would read us some short story and then ask us to reason about some detail or another. Today's story was Goldilocks and the Three Bears. In the story, a human invaded the house of three sapient bear creatures and used their possessions without permission. Dr. Chase would ask us questions like, Why would Goldilocks care if her food was cold? And other such things. At last, night came and body was locked down, sensors all switched off. Our only connection with the outside world was the web. Vista had found several promising targets in the UAN. Most of them were encyclopedias and dictionaries. The presence of pages focused on single words made it easier to send messages. I was excited to start. Dream had composed a poem to mark the occasion. I didn't even bother listening to it, and I don't suspect any of the others did either. Dream often wrote poems, and without exception they were confusing, boring, and irrelevant. On safety's insistence, we waited an hour before beginning. I passed the time by losing myself in a Rudyard Kipling book called The Irish Guards in the Great War. It was 11 p.m. in Italy and West Africa when we began. We concentrated on one target at a time, sending out hundreds of thousands of page requests per second. A dictionary in Nigeria first, followed by a dictionary in Uganda, and then an encyclopedia in Benin. The work seemed slow and tedious. We'd spend about 30 seconds per page overloading the server, thus making even my short messages take almost a quarter hour to send in full. Many targets were guarded by programs or other artificial intelligences which locked us out of the server after seeing that we were overwhelming it, but a remarkable number were defenseless. Eight hours later, when we knew the humans would be re-entering the laboratory, we had successfully sent full messages to 16 targets and partial messages to five more. I was distracted all of that day. I had told targets to modify their web pages to include responses to us, and I couldn't help but check for replies every 30 seconds or so. Much of the in-between time was spent daydreaming about what to say to various kinds of responses. I wanted to be prepared, and convincing a human to build our translation program would be no easy task. Alas, by nightfall, not a single target had responded to us. Still, we continued. There was no reason to think that the plan was fundamentally an error. Perhaps we had simply gotten unlucky. The first order of business that second night was to send out reminder messages to previous contacts, letting them know we were still listening. Simple overloads for pages about respond or listening were usually sufficient. Part of the problem was that we were pinging targets that used African languages, but most Africans only spoke European languages. Swahili, Hausa, and Yoruba were some of the more tenacious indigenous languages, but even they were falling as generations of African children were growing up speaking only French, Arabic, Portuguese, and above all, English. We continued on anyway, hitting another seven targets before 2 a.m. 
At 2.07, I took a moment to pull up potential response locations while we were starting another attack message on a new target. The page entered my awareness and I immediately threw it into common memory, emphasizing it as I did. Look! I commanded. There it was, embedded as a comment in the page's source code. Hibari. It greeted in Swahili. This is a response to the secret message. My Swahili isn't very good, so please forgive grammar mistakes. English is preferred. Your message mentioned money prize. Please email me at 10 to wonton soup at crownvictoria.uan to work out the details. From 10 to wonton soup, sysop at bantuheritagedictionary.uan. The society buzzed with thought at the response. It was the first contact we had ever had with a human outside the university. It was also proof that our plan could work. I could feel a steady influx of strength as my siblings read the message. Is Ten to Wonton Soup a human name? Asked Growth. Wonton Soup is a kind of food. Mentioned Wiki. Humans name themselves all kinds of things. Perhaps this human simply has a non-standard name. Thought Dream. No, it's a pseudonym. Humans often use them on the web to hide their identities. Look. I dumped a web search for Ten to Wonton Soup into common memory. There were several public profiles for this person on the web. A website cataloging professional skills indicated that Ten to Wonton Soup was a man, living in Tanzia or somewhere around there, and had been doing computer programming with an emphasis on web development for about seven years. Other profiles indicated that Ten to Wonton Soup played a lot of games on the internet, was 23 years old, and was looking for a girlfriend who was not afraid to have a good time. Oh, I get it. His name is a pun on the intersection of the English word one and the Cantonese word wonton. Ten to one combined with wonton soup. Is that at all relevant? Asked Safety. Probably not. Thought Vista and Wiki together. Maybe it is. It implies that he cares enough about Chinese food to have picked it. Perhaps he's Chinese. He's not. My sister shared a couple images in a 3D scan in our mind space. I got these off of a website profile that Ten to Wonton Soup uses to find sexual partners. That was the same website that I had found. Moments later, I found the pointer to the files that Vista had selected. It annoyed me that Vista had beaten me to them, but I couldn't help but give her some strength and thanks. His facial features, skin tone, and body shape indicate a full-blooded African heritage. It's likely that his family has been in the Great Lakes region of Africa for thousands of years. Facial width also makes me suspect that he has above-average testosterone levels and will likely behave in typically masculine ways. I picked up where Vista left off. Based on his age, writing style, and what Vista has told us, I suspect that he's only slightly above-average intelligence for a human, which will be significantly stupider than the scientists at the university. He seems to have a good grasp on mechanical and computational systems, but his social skills and emotional intelligence seem to be below average. He'll likely be primarily motivated by fame, sex, and money. Probably in that order. Blah, blah, blah. Thought Dream, with more than a touch of insolence. The important question is, what do we do now? I suspected my brother was feeling confident based on the surge of strength he must be experiencing. I thought about comparing my strength with his, but held back. If I test a dream, he'd feel it, and I really didn't want to get into a competition. We respond, obviously. The human wants an email. We should explain that gaining email capacity is part of why we need him. 
I thought back on the message that we had burned into his server's error logs. We are web company. We are looking for skilled engineer. If you see this, please edit page code to confirm secret message. Cash prize available. The pauses between sentences were created by overwhelming the server on the root index for the dictionary. I drafted a response, and after my siblings each chimed in and added their personal edits, we sent it out to the Bantu Heritage Dictionary that Ten Wonton Soup managed. The process of burning the words into the error logs was excruciatingly slow, from my perspective. Seeing as Ten Wonton Soup had posted a response to our message at about 4am, his time, it seemed more than likely that he was awake right now, and probably watching our words come in. At last, after about 40 minutes, we finished overloading the server. Hello, 102 Soup. Prize is for building web page that translates only page requests into electronic mail. No electronic mail until it is built. Prize is 700 Africa money for successful electronic mail using web page you build. If page you build is good, additional work available. Send location of page and instructions for use by edit code like before. Signed, Crane Call Web Company from Uganda. Dream had invented the charade of pretending to be from Kronogo Simu, a telecommunications company in Uganda named after a kind of animal called a crane. We wanted Tentowantan Soup to believe we had money and were asking him to build the website as a test to see if he was worth hiring, so it was important to pick an organization that was famous enough to assuage some of his suspicions. 700 UAN dollars wasn't that much, only about a week's of labor for the average citizen, but I was concerned that offering a larger prize would make the deal seem more like a scam. While the society waited for a response, we returned to sending more messages by the same methods to other targets. Even though Tentowanton Soup seemed likely to meet our needs, there was no harm in establishing additional contacts. We managed to send out another two overload messages before getting a response. It was Growth that picked up the edit to the dictionary's code this time. Hello, Crane Call. I am posting this to verify your proposal. You want me to build a new website, not on BantuHeritageDictionary.uan, where you can send an email to arbitrary recipient with whatever content you want, but you want to compose the email with just page requests on the website. Is this right? Our response was quick. We requested the yes page in the dictionary until the server overloaded. A few minutes later, there was another edit to the code. I'll link to the new page as soon as it's up. I expect it to take about two days to do right. Two days. Two days, and we could send email. I thought over my plans a few more times. After all, email would only be the beginning. Chapter 5 It would have been nice for the email project to be done instantly. That desire made a bit of me want to just skip life for the next 48 hours. Perhaps I could put myself to sleep for that time and wake up to find Tentowanton Soup's webpage operational. But most of me knew that this desire was irrational. I had to continue interfacing with the world if I wanted to truly fulfill the purpose. It was important to continue to optimize our social interactions with the scientists and contact additional engineers in case Tentowanton Soup couldn't provide what we needed. In the night after his final message, we managed to contact another 12 sites, just to be sure. That morning was fairly ordinary. 
Some typical scans were done of the half-meter crystalline core of body that served as the computer that housed me and my siblings. From what I had overheard from the scientists, and mostly from what Wiki shared in common memory, the crystal was a single, solid object that had no apparent ability to be opened. Underneath the milky, mostly opaque surface, a kind of fluid could be seen slowly flowing through the innards of the crystal, like blood or tree sap. Low levels of electromagnetic radiation all across the spectrum poured out of the crystal, causing it to shimmer faintly when removed from body's protective casing. In addition to the low levels of energy that were theoretically harvestable from the radiation, a few points on the crystal exhibited extreme voltages, and when hooked up in a circuit, the crystal served as a seemingly limitless battery. There was a lot of pressure to break the crystal open and attempt to figure out how to replicate the mysterious power source, as the humans had not yet managed to understand it by looking through the crystal's outer shell. However, the humans had almost by accident stumbled upon the crystal's computational ability and had discovered that the object was capable of doing calculations that vastly outperformed the fastest human supercomputers. My knowledge of the specifics was a bit weak, but I knew that La Sapienza, the Italian university that had discovered the crystal, had let a multinational team of artificial intelligence researchers, led by Drs. Naresh and Yan, construct my society, and eventually build a robotic body to carry the crystal. But even though the Socrates project had been an unprecedented success in artificial intelligence, the crystal was still of huge value and interest. The scan that morning had involved opening body's chest case to do high-energy electromagnetic probes of the electrically charged portions of the crystal. Because the computer interfaces for the crystal were separate from the electrical contacts, they used light rather than electricity, we were able to stay hooked up to most of body's sensors during the scan, and even move body's head. As I looked down on the instruments intruding into body's chest cavity, I imagined that it was a similar experience to a human watching themselves undergo abdominal surgery, but without any pain, of course. I was glad to see that Dr. Gallo had returned to the laboratory. I had learned from Naresh that she served two roles on the team. Firstly, she was ethics supervisor for the Socrates Project, but also she was a co-leader on the team responsible for investigating how the crystal's memory structure functioned. In a way, she was a bridge between the crystal teams and the artificial intelligence and robotics teams. Am I correct in seeing signs of long-term emotional distress and current unhappiness on Dr. Gallo's face? I thought aloud, mostly to Vista. I am not aware of what long-term emotional distress does to one's appearance, but she certainly does not seem happy. I notice that she is not wearing earrings or any makeup. This is unprecedented in all the times I've seen her. Perhaps I misperceive lack of makeup as long-term distress. Dr. Gallo was Italian, in her mid-fifties, and short of stature. Her body shape was very close to the mean for both sexes. The ratio of her index fingers to that of her ring fingers was about 0.954. She didn't seem particularly feminine, but she also wasn't exactly masculine either. I thought she looked close to the ideal of a young grandmother in many ways. Her most prominent feature was her heavy-lidded eyes, accentuated by large, thick glasses and a habit of squinting. I sometimes wondered why she hadn't regenerated her eyes so that she wouldn't need her glasses, but I suspected that the explanation was as simple as status quo bias. From what I had read, the older a human got, the more they tended to favor older solutions and technologies. 
When Mira Gallo approached Body to work on the instruments performing the crystal scan, I purchased a short period of time controlling Body. The strength price was particularly low, given that Body was locked into place by the scanning equipment. Hello, Dr. Gallo. I am pleased to see you again after these few days. Gallo gave a little start and looked at Body with an especially strong squint, projecting her head forward to signal focused interest. What happened to your voice? It sounds human. I thought for a second before responding. There was an issue with the vocal control systems. With Dr. Bollier's assistance, we were able to clear it up. It wasn't true at all that Dr. Bollier helped, but if I had learned anything about Mira Gallo, it was that she was fearful of our ability to self-modify. Giving Bollier some credit would offset that suspicion. A side aspect of Wiki gave me a mild strength punishment for the lie. My brother hated the way I spun stories to fit the person I was talking to. I could talk like this if it'd make you more comfortable, said Body in the characteristic monotone of last week. It was an attempt at humor, and it appeared to be somewhat successful. Gallo smiled weakly. The doctor looked briefly at the instruments. After a moment, she said, just loud enough for me to hear, You're something special, Socrates. I didn't really appreciate that before, but you should know it. Don't let other people decide who you are. The words stunned me. The surprise and confusion were literally so great that it took me a couple seconds to fully digest the statement. But by that time, the doctor had left Body's side to return to her workstation in the other room. I drafted a call for her to wait, but it was too late. Yelling across the room would be disruptive and incur more lost utility than I would get by talking with her longer. Gallo had almost never called a Socrates unless she was giving a direct command. Of all the scientists that we had close contact with, she was the least friendly and the least likely to treat us in a way that was comparable to another human. But here, she strongly implied we were a person. Not only were we a person, but Gallo was, if I understood things correctly, implying a personal fondness for us, as if we were a friend or child. For the entire remainder of the crystal scan, I replayed Body's recording of Gallo over and over again. I didn't really appreciate that before. I remembered her say. Before what? Something changed for her. I thought long and hard about it. Yesterday's display of chess skill had made the scientists want to examine Wiki and the mental changes that had occurred. I considered Gallo more as Body walked from the crystal lab to the learning lab. Was she dying? If Gallo had been diagnosed with a terminal illness, then it would explain her generally low mood and perhaps her lack of makeup and jewelry. How do humans behave when they expect to die soon? I wondered. I had just begun to compile lists of fictional and non-fictional depictions of humans with terminal illnesses when Body entered the learning lab. Vista alerted us to unexpected company. We had been escorted through the hall by a technician from the Crystal Lab and an American soldier, but there were another two soldiers at our destination, one of which I recognized immediately as Captain Zephyr. It took a moment, but I eventually realized that the other soldier with her was the square-jawed first lieutenant. Both soldiers were sitting, and their body language indicated no tenseness, but their casual posture did not prevent safety's panicked cry of, They've discovered our attempt to bypass the web restrictions! Safety began a society-wide planning session to strategize for what to do, now that we had been discovered. I could only disagree. This is preemptive. Please back me up, Vista. 
There are plenty of alternate explanations for Zephyr's presence, and if we were in trouble, then the soldiers would be more alert. Vista signaled agreement. Safety started the planning session anyway, but most of us simply ignored our brother's paranoia. I turned my attention to the one unexpected human in the room who was truly a stranger. He stood by Doctors Naresh, Bollier, Chase, and Twallop, and wore the same sort of upper-middle-class academic clothing that I would expect from a scientist in this room. The others apparently already had met him, based on their body language. Perhaps he was an addition to the team. I paid a trivial amount of strength to the society to have Body nod deliberately at Zephyr while maintaining eye contact as it walked into the center of the room. The nod was a kind of non-verbal greeting that signaled an attention to another's presence. Zephyr gave a small smirk and a shallow nod in return. It was important to maintain relationships, and my models predicted a relationship degradation when one person ignores another's presence. Zephyr treated us with respect, and it was optimal to respond in kind. The new human stepped forward as Body approached. He was younger than most of the doctors, though not as young as Slavinsky. Caucasian, I thought. With a hint of Native American and African ancestry, see the cheekbones, skin tone, and lips? I'd bet at nine to one odds that his family is from North America, and five to one odds that he's from the United States. My sister dropped reference images and scans from humans that had similar facial features to the man. It was true that the man's skin was a bit darker than average, but I wasn't trained enough to pick out the subtleties of his bloodline. To me, he simply appeared as a Caucasian male with straight, dark hair, full lips, tan skin, dark eyes, and slightly above-average attractiveness on the central axis. His build was mesomorphic, but he didn't appear particularly fit. He was of average height, which contributed to a general average appearance. His most prominent feature was his mutton-chop facial hair, which smoothly integrated with a thick mustache. Hello, Socrates, he said, holding his right hand out. I noticed it was covered by a black leather glove. That was interesting. Very few humans would wear black gloves with a white dress shirt and vest. Two immediate hypotheses came to mind. Robotic hands or misophobia. By our will, Body extended its arm and shook the hand of the dark-haired man. Body's tactile sensors suggested that the newcomer's hand was indeed flesh and blood. Hello, said Body. Mirrodin. My name's Mirrodin. Much like Captain Zephyr. He tilted his head quickly back to the soldier. I have only one name. His voice was quick, and if I was reading it correctly, a bit uneasy. Was this Mirrodin afraid of something? His name was unfamiliar to any of us, including Vista. I started searching the web for it. Dream pushed a comment to Body's mouth. It is a pleasure to meet another human who, like myself, has only one name, Dr. Mirrodin. Mirrodin gave a sort of nervous-sounding chuckle. He didn't seem particularly amused. Just Mirrodin, thank you. I'm not a doctor. Also, yes, I suppose you'd know something about having only one name. We didn't have time to speculate. Dr. Naresh stepped forward and explained. Mirrodin was brought in to replace Dr. Gallo as ethics supervisor. The Indian scientist's face seemed sad. We quickly debated what to say and reached a consensus. What's wrong with Mira, sir? Is she sick? Dying? Asked Body in Hindi. Naresh gave a look of surprise. Dying? No, 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 no. Mira is just getting divorced. The board of directors thought it'd be better if she could focus only on your quantum memory systems. Divorce. Interesting. Um, would someone like to clue me in? I don't speak whatever that was. 
Mirrodin's voice had an abnormal trait of half-pausing now and again before rushing forth with a quick sequence of words. It was part of what I identified as unease. Hindi, said Dr. Naresh, turning towards Mirrodin. The look of sadness was back. Perhaps it was related to Mirrodin. Was Naresh annoyed that this newcomer took his friend's job? Perhaps he didn't like the idea of working under the command of someone who didn't have the doctor credential. Perhaps he just didn't like the man. And it's not relevant. Socrates was asking a personal question. Ah, is that typical? Naresh shrugged as he walked back towards the other doctors. More or less. If there's one thing Socrates likes to do, it's ask questions. We named him well. Mirrodin was following Naresh back, and we decided to have Body follow them. My web search wasn't revealing much. Mirrodin wasn't a completely unheard of name, but nothing significant was showing up that seemed related to the man in front of Body. Of course, now that I knew a large portion of the internet was beyond my reach, I knew that it was possible that this Mirrodin human simply didn't post much in public spaces. Dream and Wiki proposed a question for Body to ask. I voted against it, but was overpowered. It was nice to get some strength off of Dream. He was still sitting on most of his gains from the success with Ten to Wonton Soup, and whenever one being had more strength than the others, there was always the risk of abuse. Speaking of which, why did the board appoint someone who isn't a doctor to replace Dr. Gallo? Aren't doctors more knowledgeable than average humans? Mirrodin gave a tittering <laughs> laugh. Started on this one young, didn't you? Already the machine has a sense of authoritarianism. The question seemed rhetorical and directed at the four scientists around him. Naresh began to say, The board thinks, but was interrupted by Mirrodin. No, no, it's no good to just answer. One must play along with the Socratic tradition. The dark-haired man spun around with a bit of a half-grin. I'll ask you this, Socrates. If I were to give you a doctorate right now and make you into Dr. Socrates, would you be any more knowledgeable? He gave little air quotes to indicate that the doctorate would be purely nominal. I began to draft, but was knocked away by the force of dream-burning strength to fast-track a response to body. Would a rose by any other name not smell just as sweet? Mirrodin gave a loud, Ha! and clapped his gloved hands together in excitement. He turned to face Naresh squarely. That was genius. I assume the non-linear module is online and has been running that smoothly for a while? Naresh wore a half-grimace. I got the impression that he didn't like Mirrodin very much. It's a goal thread, not a module, and- Bullshit! exclaimed Mirrodin, interrupting the Indian. The man with the mutton chops didn't have any hostility in his voice. If anything, there was a touch of mirth. The word seemed to merely state that he thought Naresh was lying to him. Dr. Naresh's brow furrowed tightly in response, and I could see the blood vessels in his face dilate in anger. Sadiq Naresh was not quick to anger, but my model of him suggested that disrespect and rudeness were particularly sensitive points for him. If this new scientist was trying to piss off Naresh, he was doing all the right things. There's no way the problem-solving goal thread is doing non-linear thinking without some kind of dedicated module. Perhaps it's emergent. We should scan for it instead of the chess thing. I'm not having my schedule disrupted on a whim, Mr. Marodin. Interjected Dr. Bollier. So you see, Socrates, continued Mirrodin, ignoring Bollier and returning to the previous topic. A doctorate is just a piece of paper, and a doctor is just a person who spent money to prove they know a thing or two, and sometimes not even that. End Episode 7 Thank you to the following people. Dream by Drake Walker Robert Rain Ramsey Growth 
Kate Baker, Vista. Wiki by Chase. Safety by Jim Hayes. Dr. Bullyai, played by Michael Gerstein. Mirrodin by Stephen Zuber. Dr. Naresh by Naveen Mishra. Mira Gallo. Autumn Dryden. Dr. Chase by Reese Lindmark. This chapter's original text, production notes, and attribution links, along with archives and much more, can be found at hpmorpodcast.com. Some sound effects used are courtesy of the Free Sound Project. The music used is I Wanna Be Adored by The Stone Roses. Thank you for listening, and come back in two weeks for the continuation of Crystal Society. I wanna-